Good morning, everyone. It's a gorgeous, beautiful day today. Uh, last, Sunday, uh, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, was equally as gorgeous. And as I was thinking about today, I was thinking about the disciples. And you know, they had a pretty interesting week around what we now call Easter week themselves. They had experienced a lot during what we would call Holy Week. Then Easter came. Our Lord was raised from the dead. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and to the disciples. And then what? What happened following that? They went to Galilee and waited. For some of you, perhaps today, you're waiting. The glow of Easter is over. It's the week after. Yes, it's beautiful. But some of the struggles, some of the emotions, some of the brokenness surfaces again in your life, and you're wondering, okay, so... Jesus rose from the dead. What about what, am I, what I am experiencing? What I am wrestling with? Why do, not, why do I not feel like it's Easter all over again? Why am I feeling stuck in my struggles? I think our passage today has something to say to us if that's who we are. This passage in John chapter 21 is the last chapter in John's gospel. And it seems to me that if you look at the whole of, God, of John's gospel, but you look at 21 as well, this chapter, one thing that seems to be screaming out of the text is, what does a disciple look like to Jesus? And you know, that's the ultimate question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, what does the disciple look like to Jesus? Not to us, not to others, but to him. He spent three years pouring his life, investing his life into men and women, his disciples. And he was not finished with them as we will see here in John chapter 21. One of the interesting things is when they go back, they have this time with Jesus on the shore. And it made me recall some of the more special breakfast traditions that have gone on in families that I've heard about over the years. In fact, our daughter and her husband have one of those family traditions themselves, where on Saturdays, many Saturdays, he will get up, He's not usually the one that fixes breakfast, and he fixes breakfast. It's not a particularly healthy breakfast, but he fixes it nonetheless. The kids love it. And they're building a tradition, and they're building memories that will last with them forever. These disciples are experiencing something in this story that will become a tradition for them and for us. They will never forget it while they're alive and those who have followed after them will never forget it because John has penned it and put it in this letter. 
Let's go to John chapter 21 and read the first 19 verses. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The disciples followed in the boat, towing their net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Father, that call is to each and every one of us here this morning. To follow you. Would you show us in this passage by your Holy Spirit more of you and more of what it means to follow you. We ask this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting that in John chapter 21, Jesus brings the disciples back 
to where it all began. You may recall from Mark chapter 1 this particular text. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So the exact place, likely, where Jesus began his ministry and where he began his ministry with these men, he's going to bring it to a close. Perhaps on the same beach, on the Sea of Galilee, back where it all started. You may remember the story from Luke 5, verses 1 to 11, Luke's version of the calling of the disciples. Jesus gets in the boat. He goes offshore. They haven't caught anything. He says to Peter, well, throw the net on the other side. And, of course, Peter is a fisherman, and he knows fish. He knows what it's like to fish. He knows where to fish. He knows what to fish with. So he's a little taken back. He says, Lord, we've been out here all night. We've tried all the hot spots. We've looked in our fish finder. We cannot find fish anywhere. But since you're a teacher, I'll throw the net on the other side. Well, you know the rest of the story. The net is so full that it tears with fish. It is a defining moment in the life of Peter and probably the other disciples as well. And Peter's afraid. He fears God. He knows what it takes to fish. He does not understand what it takes to make this happen that he just witnessed. And Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. Come, follow me. You'll not only fish for these kind of fish, but you'll fish for people. That's what I'm calling you to to be my disciple. And so isn't it interesting, all of this time you come back to the same place where it all started and there's another miraculous catch. And what Jesus is doing is he's deepening their understanding of who he is. Because as their understanding of who he is deepens, they will follow him more deeply. They will love him more deeply as they understand him. And so he's trying to teach them through these miracles. He's preparing them in Luke. Don't be afraid. Follow me. He's launching them, as it were, back out again in John 21. I'm, I'm reinstituting this. I'm reconstituting you. I'm restating your purpose in life to be my disciple. It's also interesting in verse 1 and verse 14, which are the first 14 verses of chapter 21. Verse 1 and verse 14 both speak of Jesus' manifestation or his revelation of himself. He is revealing himself to the disciples. He's manifesting himself. Now, why would he do that? Why would he continue to reveal himself? This is the third time that he's revealed himself post-resurrection to the disciples. Why would he do that? Why is that important? Well, number one, it reinforces their faith. 
It's been a tough week. They're sent back to Galilee. They don't really know exactly what's going to happen. And so for him to manifest or to reveal himself to them in this context is to reinforce their faith in him. Maybe what he said was true. Maybe what we witnessed was true. And their faith deepens. Not only that, there is a deeper understanding of Jesus and who he is and what his purpose is, what his mission and his vision is. And they're going to need that as they move into Acts and get the power of the Holy Spirit to go out into all the world. And it's also revealing that he wants them to understand that believing Jesus is inextricably bound and linked to knowing him. And he's not talking here about intellectual knowledge or assent or how many facts do you know about the man. He's talking about knowing me, knowing me personally. Can you say that this morning, that you know personally Jesus? Not that you just know of him or just that you go to church and you acknowledge that he exists, but do you know him personally in your heart? He wants to strengthen your faith and my faith through this story this morning so that when we become discouraged and when we're downtrodden, that he can speak that truth into our heart and it will lift us up. So he reveals himself and he manifests himself to us. Think about it. What has happened to these disciples this past week? They have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they're all excited. They think Jesus is going to be the new ruler, the new king. He's going to overthrow Rome. Their oppression is going to end. They go from that to this special night, which we now call Monday Thursday, where they have this intimate dinner with Jesus. He gets up from the table. He washes their feet to show them what it looks like to serve one another. And then he gives them a new command. He says, as I have loved you, namely like washing your feet and providing for you, as I have loved you, you must love one another. Then there's an unexpected late night arrest and a betrayal by one of the friends. Then there's the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And then his burial. And then on Easter morning, God raises him from the dead. And he appears to Mary and to some of the disciples. That's a lot in one week to experience. Now they're told to go to Galilee and wait. And that's what they do, except for Peter. Peter, the often impetuous one, the leader of this band of disciples, decides he's going to do what Peter does. He's going to go fishing. And they say, well... Hey, we'll go with you. I mean, you do have to eat, right? There's some that say, they read that passage and believe somehow that the disciples were disowning their original commission by Jesus. 
But I don't think that's happening here. I think they're processing. I think they have to eat. Perhaps their family has to eat. And they're doing what they do. So they went fishing. Some of the takeaways I think that we can draw from the, this first passage in 21, the first 14 verses, are this. Jesus, number one, uses familiar places in our lives to teach us. He doesn't always say you have to go across the pond and be a missionary somewhere, or you have to have this kind of role, or you have to be in ordained ministry, or you have to have this kind of job, or this kind of family, or these kinds of gifts. He doesn't say that oftentimes. He uses us and teaches us right where we are, often in the mundane things of our lives. It's, it's just a beach. It's just a lake. It's just fishing. It's just who they are. It's just what they do. But it's in the midst of that that he teaches them. And it's in the midst of our lives, our daily lives, what, what we do, who we are, our relationships that Jesus teaches us. Not only that, Peter was a pretty good fisherman. And one of the things that Jesus did for Peter and continues to do to this day to us is to take the areas where we have our greatest gifts and our greatest confidence and show us how much we need to depend on him. So Peter is a, a fantastic fisherman, but in Luke 5, they catch nothing. In this chapter in John's gospel, they fish, but they catch nothing. What is the point of that story? The point of that story is to teach Peter and to teach us that no matter how good you are, no matter how good you are at what you do, it's never as good as it should be or could be if your dependence is on you and not on Jesus. If you're self-reliant today, whatever gifts you have will not be as effective as they would if you did not rely on yourself and you did rely and depend on Jesus. And you may never know that. You may never see that. You may actually even think what you're doing is pretty good. And in a general kind of sense, it probably is. But what could Jesus do with that? In your life, what could he do with it in your family and others, in your work, bringing people to Christ? If you depended on him rather than your own resources. I mean, here was the story. They went out and they caught nothing. Sometimes we are at our best when we depend on him and not ourselves. If we follow him, if we place our trust in him, even in unknown places where he calls us, it's quite possible we will succeed. But it won't be because of us. It'll be because of Jesus. So he's standing on the shore. They don't know who he is at this point. It's probably dim in the early morning. And he says, hey, guys, did you catch anything? Well, who asked fishermen, did you catch anything? If they did, they probably won't tell him. If they didn't, they won't tell him either. But in this case, 
They do. Hey, guys, did you catch anything? Not a long explanation. No. And part of what he wants them to see and to recognize in that is their own failure. These are professional fishermen, and they can't get the job done. And when they can't, and they know that they can't, what they're going to see next will change their lives forever. And Jesus says, well, throw the net on the right side. And so they do. But the point of the text is really not so much about the 153 fish that they caught. What Jesus and what John want us to see in the passage is, too many times, the decisions we make are on the left side of the boat. Because the left side of the boat is where we decide and where we make the decision and where we trust in our own resources. And Jesus is clearly saying metaphorically here, throw the net on the right side of the boat because I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make it happen. That's what they did. And you know what happened. It was a great, great catch. But it's simply, as I said, not about the fish. Jesus is taking them out of their comfort zone. Their comfort zone was, we know how to do this. We got this. But when it doesn't work, then we're out of our comfort zone. We've been out of our comfort zone a lot this past year, have we not? And we've had to learn what that feels like and what that looks like and how much have we been depending on Jesus in the midst of that. But not only that, not only does he take us out of our comfort zone, but he asked the disciples as he asked us to step out, do something different. They wouldn't understand what this term means, but have a global mindset, have a global impact, a global vision about the gospel, about my mission. And you're not going to do that if you always throw your net out on the left side. You're going to have to get outside your comfort zone in order to see me work in your lives. Author and pastor Kent Hughes has a wonderful little story about what this meant for them to get out of their comfort zone and to go global. He says this, the horizon of these fishermen's lives was bound by the margins of Galilee. Once in a while, they went down to Jerusalem for a festival but by and large, they knew little more than the deck of their boat, the currents of the lake, and a handful of people in the marketplace. Then Christ came, and how their lives changed and their world changed. John would go to Ephesus, Thomas to India, Andrew would go to the borders of Russia. Now, they didn't all go there. That's not the point. The point is, when we allow our vision to be expanded in ways that God wants it to, paralleling his vision and his mission for the gospel in the world, then he's going to take us out of places that we thought we were comfortable in and move us in other areas because that's where he needs us. And he will do that. 
You know, another takeaway from these early verses is that Jesus never asked us to do anything. He didn't ask the disciples to do anything that he didn't provide the provision for. Not only did they have a great catch on the right side of the boat, when they get into the shore, they actually see that there are fish on the grill. And there's bread to eat. Jesus provides what we need to do what he calls us to do as his disciple. That's the heart of this passage. What does it look like to be a disciple to Jesus? It's to depend on him. It's to allow him to provide for us. It's to seek him, seek his wisdom, to know him in deeper and deeper ways. Luke 5 the net is so full it breaks. But in this particular instance, when they throw the net on the right side of the boat, the net does not break. I think this is intentional by John to say this. Two things. There's 153. There are lots of trees that have died over the centuries trying to figure out what the 153 number actually means. The church fathers down through the ages have given lots of different rationale for that. I'm going to give you Mike Phillips' simple mind explanation of that. I think it means a whole lot of fish. I think that's what the 153 means, a whole bunch. And what he is saying here is you put a whole bunch in that other net and it breaks. But I'm sending you on a mission now that has a gospel net in it. And that gospel net does not break. And I'm going to send you to places like almost to Russia and to India and to Africa and to other places. And your net's not going to break. And that's what he's encouraging and telling his disciples. But maybe the best part I like in these opening verses is that God is a God of second chances. He's a God of third chances, of fourth chances. I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for that today. I'm thankful that he is a God of many chances. You think about the first three disciples that are mentioned in this text. Peter, how many chances did Peter need? You think about doubting Thomas, how many chances did he need? You think about Nathaniel, how many chances did he need? How many chances do you need? How many do I need? God is a God of second chances. And sometimes we miss it. And when we miss it, it seems so silly at the moment. Listen to these examples. In 1894, the rhetoric teacher at Harrow in England wrote on a 16-year-old report card a conspicuous lack of success. That 16-year-old, Winston Churchill. In 1902, the poetry editor of the Atlantic Monthly returned a sheaf of poems to a 28-year-old poet with this curt note. Our magazine has no room for your vigorous verse. The poet, Robert Frost. In 1905, the University of Berlin turned down a PhD dissertation as being irrelevant and fanciful. The young physicist student who wrote the dissertation, Albert Einstein. And his dissertation 
was on the theory of relativity. Now, God wouldn't make those kinds of mistakes because he sees. He sees what we cannot see. He is a God of second chances, and he gives his people second chances. And I think in particular, maybe two lessons here that we can take away from this. God does not give up on you. And can I just say that that is good, great news, that he doesn't give up on you, he doesn't give up on me. The second is equally as important, and that is that we not give up on God. If he has called us to be a disciple and he has said to us, follow me, then that's what we should do. With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we should follow him. So we move from that first part of chapter 21 into this second episode in verses 15 to 19. And in this, we really, in my estimation, get to the heart of this chapter and because it's about love. Jesus said in chapter 13, he said, here's your new command, as I've loved you, I want you to love one another. No greater love has a man than to lay down his life for another. Jesus, throughout John's gospel and throughout the gospels, has been loving his people and talking about the love relationship that he has with the Father. And he wants his disciples to see that. He wants them to see the depth of his love for them because unless you see that depth, you will not want to follow him to some of the places that he'll take you. He'll say that to John in just a few verses. But he comes here with three questions, three responses, and three commands. Well-known passage. He first says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me more than these? Well, there are a lot of trees have died on this. Who, who, who does he mean by more than these? It seems in the context that what Jesus is saying is, Peter, do you love me more than you love these guys? Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than these disciples? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your assets? Do you love me more? That's what he's asking. Are you committed? Are you sold out? Do you have a rock-solid love for me? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you, which is another Greek word for love, brotherly affection. So Jesus asked him, Do you love me in a divine type of love, an agape type of love? And Peter responds back and says, Yes, Lord, I love you like a brother. Now, this is the process that Jesus is going through to restore Peter for an incredible ministry. So he asks again, or the command that Jesus gives him is to feed my lambs. Feed those that are young in the faith, Peter. And then Jesus asks again, he says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me? But here there's no comparisons. I'm not asking you, do you love me more than others? I'm just asking, do you love me? 
And Peter again says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you like a brother. So Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The point here in part is that if you love Jesus, the result is you'll love his people. You'll love his sheep. You'll love his lambs and you'll take care of them. The verbs here, feed, take care, feed. This ministry is not about some role that you're given or some position that you have. As Don Carson explains, these are Christ's sheep, not Peter's sheep. He doesn't say, feed your lambs. He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. The third question he asks, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you love me? He changes the verb here, does Jesus, from agape to the verb that Peter has been using. Do you love me as a brother? He's saying basically to Peter, I understand. I understand you can't go there right now. You can't go to an agape kind of love. And it's not, it's not the fact that Jesus changes the verbs that bothers Peter. It's the fact that it's the third time. And forever in his life, after he's restored, he's going to always remember the number three. Now, those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we, we get it. The number three is a complete number, right? Like the number seven the Trinity. But I bet Peter struggled with that his entire life. That I denied my Savior three times. And so the text in the NIV says that Peter was hurt. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. He hasn't said that before. He's saying... I know you, Lord, are sovereign over all, that you know all things. You, you knew. When I stepped out and said, I wouldn't deny you, you knew that I would deny you. You know all things, and you know that I love you. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus says once again to Peter, feed my sheep. In restoring Peter, Jesus is teaching him that it is in his brokenness that Peter's love will show as he shepherds the lambs. It is in your brokenness that Jesus will use you to feed and to shepherd his lambs. It is in my brokenness that Jesus will use that to feed his sheep and his lambs. You remember back in 13, chapter 13, Peter tells Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. This is just a week earlier. And Jesus predicts his denials. Peter then demonstrates his failure. But in this chapter, and at this point in Peter's life, He's a different man. Something is happening. It's getting through. It's getting deeper. His understanding of who Jesus is is deepening. His love that he is receiving from Jesus is deepening. 
And as that deepens, so does his love for him. Peter is ready to be the kind of disciple who would follow Jesus even the point even to the point of laying down his life, which is exactly what Jesus says in those closing verses. You will lay down your life for me. All three times Jesus invites Peter past his weaknesses to ministry. You might be thinking this morning, I have so many failures I have so many weaknesses. There's so much brokenness in my life that I don't have a ministry. I can tell you that is not the way Jesus sees you. That is not what his love means for you. He died for every one of those broken places in your life. And he died for them because not only did he want you to be forgiven of them, he wanted you to serve. He wanted you to be his disciple. He wanted you to feel, to experience the love that he has, that the Father has for you so that you could go out and feed his lambs and feed his sheep. Your failure has not changed anything between us, I'm sure Jesus said to Peter. You're still in the family. You're mine. And I don't lose any who are mine. To know, to know that you are loved, to know that you are loved that much, I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that is an absolute game changer. To know that Jesus loves you that much changes your life forever. If you leave with nothing more than this reality this morning, it will realign your life and change you forever. There is nothing more important than understanding the depth of the love that Jesus has for you. When that love touches you, says Wayne Jacobson, you will discover there is nothing more powerful in the entire universe. It is more powerful than your failures, your sins, your disappointments, your dreams, and even your fears. God knows that when you tap the depths of his love, your life will be changed forever. Jacobson says it this way. This is my great bumper sticker phrase. Peter was learning to live loved. Can you say that this morning? That you are learning to live loved. That's not something that you say. That's something you experience. And he wants you to experience the fullness of that today. Jesus wanted Peter's heart, just like he wants your heart and my heart. He wasn't looking for Peter's obedience. Jesus knows this. If he has your heart, he'll get all the rest. He'll get your obedience. You'll want to follow him. You'll want to obey him. But if all, if all he wants is your obedience, then it just becomes about rule following. And that is not the Jesus of the Gospels. He is about love.
When Hudson Taylor was director of the China Inland Mission, he often interviewed candidates for the mission field, and on one occasion he met with a number of applicants to determine their motivations for service. He wanted to know, why, why do you want to do this? What's your vision? What's the mission? What's, what's drawing you to this type of service? And why do you wish to go as a foreign missionary? So he asked that to one, and they replied, I want to go because Christ commanded us to go into all the world. Matthew 28, 20. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go into all the world and serve. Another said, I want to go because millions are perishing without Christ. Others gave different answers. Then Hudson Taylor said, all of these motives, however good, however good they are, will fail you in times of testings, trials, tribulations, and possibly death. There is but one motive that will sustain you in trial and testing, namely, the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that constrains us, that compels us, that keeps us. When everything else around us is failing, it is the love of Christ that keeps us in his stead. So what would we say about this message for us today on this beautiful Sunday morning? I think it says this. Love is the defining mark of a disciple. Not obedience, but love. Love is the defining mark of a disciple. And Jesus shows us that, and we learn it from him. He doesn't have to tell us that. He shows us that when he washes the disciples' feet. He says, as I have loved you, love one another. If I know how to fish, and I need to do it well, and need to do it well, and can do it well, then my temptation is to trust in it to trust in my ability, to trust in my own provision. And that, Jesus said, is what must die. That willingness, that inclination for us to take control and to remove Jesus out of the picture, that has to die in us if we want to be a disciple of Jesus. He's calling us to follow him, namely that we would rely on him and our dependence would be centered in him. In John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do a little bit, right? No, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Even when you think you're getting something done, in my plans, and in my vision and in my mission, it's not happening the way I desire it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus brings his disciples back to where it all began in the beginning, back to the Sea of Galilee. He called them to reaffirm their commitment. Many times they had failed him. But he's calling them and saying, I want to recommission you today for the work that I have for you. And then he wants to move them to the mission of the gospel through the coming gift of the Holy Spirit fueled by 
love. And that's what he's calling on us today as his disciples. It really is all about love. Not earthly love, not worldly love, not fleshly love, but godly love, the kind of love that Jesus showed in dying for us. And now he wants us to live in light of that love and to live our life in light of that and be his disciples. Would you do that? Let's pray and ask God to continue that good work in our hearts. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, that you've used your uh, apostle John to give us this great story that you tell us about Peter, his failures, how you forgave him, how you encouraged him, how you empowered him through your love to accomplish your mission as his disciples. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do and continue to do that same work in us and help us put to death the dependency that we have on our own efforts and our own gifts and rely and depend on the one who loved us so much that he gave his life for us. We ask that in his powerful name, amen.